Section 42 being Chapter 10, Parts 14 and 15 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1 by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 10, Part 14 Negotiations for Peace In the meantime, the Athenians had taken no measures to check the victorious winter campaign of Brasidas. Their inactivity was due to two causes. The disaster of Delium had disheartened them, and rendered the citizens unwilling to undertake fresh toil in Thrace. In Grecian history we must steadfastly keep in view that we are reading about citizen-soldiers, not about professional soldiers, and that the temper of the time, whether of confidence or dismay, modifies all the calculations of military and political prudence. Secondly, the peace party, especially represented by the generals Nicias and Larches, took advantage of this depression to work in the direction of peace. The possession of the Spartan captives gave the means of coming to terms with Sparta at any moment, but it was clear that they could not now conclude a peace on such favourable terms as would have been possible a year before. If an able statesman, like Pericles, had at this time possessed the confidence and guided the counsels of the Athenians, he would have persuaded them to postpone all thoughts of peace until the success of Rasidas had been decisively checked, and the prestige of Athens in some degree retrieved. This was obviously the true policy which would have enabled Athens to win the full advantage of the captives of Sphacteria. It was a policy which Cleon, a far abler politician than any of his opponents, must have preached loudly in the assembly. But the Athenians were not in a mood to weigh considerations of policy. They were swayed by the feelings of the hour, which were flattered by the arguments of the military experts, and they decisively inclined to peace. The Lacedaemonians were more deliberately set on peace than the Athenians. Their anxiety to recover the Sphacterian captives increased, and on the other hand they desired to set a term to the career of Brasidas in Chalcidiki. They wished to take advantage of the considerable successes he had already won, to extort favourable conditions from Athens, before any defeat should undo or reverse his triumphs. Nor was the news of his exploits received at Sparta with unmixed feelings of pleasure. They were rather regarded with jealousy and distrust. The victories had not been won by an army of Spartan citizens, but by the brilliant unspartan qualities of Brasidas, and a force of which the effectiveness entirely depended on its leader. Brasidas had broken through the fetters of Lacedaemonian method, and his fellow citizens felt that he was a man of different fibre from themselves, and suspected and disliked him accordingly. Moreover, the personal influence of King Pleistoanax was thrown weightily into the scale of peace. This king had been banished just before the Thirty Years' Peace on the ground that he had taken bribes to spare Attica when he invaded it after the deliverance of Megara. He had lived for nearly twenty years in western Arcadia, on the mountain of Lycaon, beside the dread sanctuary of Zeus, of which it was told that whosoever entered it lost his shadow and died before the year was out. Even here Pleistoanax was afraid for his life. 
His house was half within the precincts, so that in case of danger he could retire into the sacred place without passing his door. But he had influence at Delphi, and whenever the Spartans consulted that oracle, they were always bidden to take back into their own land the seed of the demigod, the son of Zeus, or else they would have to plough with the silver share. The Lacedaemonians at length recalled him, and re-enthroned him as king with ancient and most solemn ceremonies. But his enemies now vexed him with the charge of having bribed the Pythian priestess to procure his recall. Pleistoanax conceived that such charges would fall to the ground if he satisfied the people by negotiating a permanent peace and restoring as speedily as possible the prisoners from their captivity in Athens to their impatient friends at home. And as a matter of fact, Sparta had everything to gain from making peace at once, unless she was prepared to adopt the imperial policy of Athens, against which it had been hitherto her role to protest. Such a policy might for a time have met with some success if she had put her whole confidence in Brasidas, but must soon have been checked by the naval superiority of her rival. Placeranax and Nicias understood each other, and Nicias, a man of commonplace ability and possessed by one idea, played into the hands of Sparta. It was not, however, an easy matter to arrange the exact terms of a durable pacification, while it was important for Athens that the negotiation should be made before she experienced any further losses in Thrace. Accordingly, the two states agreed on a truce for a year, which would give them time to arrange quietly and at leisure the conditions of a permanent peace. The truce and some of its conditions were suggested by Athens. The terms were drawn up at Sparta and accepted by the Spartan assembly, and were then conveyed to Athens, where they were proposed for the acceptance of the Athenian assembly by lackeys. The clauses were the following. 1. Free access to the Delphic oracle was ensured to all, for Athens had been debarred from consulting it during the war. 2. Both parties guaranteed the protection of the treasures of Delphi. 3. During the truce, both parties should keep what they had, the Athenians retaining Pylos, Cythera, Argolic Methoni, Nisaia, and Minoa. 4. The Lacedaemonians were not to sail, even along their own coasts, in warships or in merchant vessels exceeding a certain size, 12 tons. 5. The free passage of envoys, for the purpose of arranging a peace, was provided for. 6. Neither party was to receive deserters. And 7. Disputes, in case they arose, were to be decided by arbitration. The truce was sworn to. But in the meantime an event happened in Chalcidice, which was to disappoint the pacific calculations of the statesmen at Athens and Sparta. The city of Scione, on the western prong of the Chalcidian fork, revolted from Athens and invited Brasidas, much to that general surprise. For it was far more hazardous for the towns on the peninsula of Palini to defy the authority of Athens than for any others, since by the strong city of Potidaea, which stretched entirely across the narrow isthmus, they were isolated and as much exposed to the full force of Athenian power as if they had been islanders. The arrival of Brasidas and the words he spoke to them wound up the men of Scione to the highest pitch of enthusiasm. They set a golden crown on his head as the liberator of Hellas, and their admiration for him personally was shown by casting garlands on him as if he were a victorious athlete, so great was his popularity. 
At this point an Athenian and a Lacedaemonian commissioner arrived to announce the truce, which had in fact been concluded two days before Scione revolted. The Athenians refused to admit Scione to the benefit of the armistice, until the authorities at home had been consulted. There was deep indignation at Athens when the news of the defection of Scione arrived. It was practically the rebellion of islanders, relying on the land power of Sparta. Cleon was able to take advantage of this exasperation, and carry a decree that Scione should be destroyed, and all the male inhabitants slain. This incident brings out, in an interesting way, the geographical difference between the three sea-girt promontories of Chalcidiki as to their degrees of participation in the insular character. Acti, with its steep inhospitable shores, is far more continental than insular. Scythonia partakes of both natures more equally, is more strictly a half-island. Palini is more an island than part of the mainland and we see the political importance of such geographical differences. The loss of Scione produces an irritation at Athens, which the loss of Torone could not inspire. The revolt of Scione was followed by that of the neighbouring town of Mende, and although this happened distinctly after the truce had been made, Brasidas did not hesitate to accept the alliance of Mende, his plea being that in certain points the Athenians themselves had broken the truce. The case of Mende differed from that of Scione, for the revolt was the doing not of the people, but of an oligarchical faction. Brasidas was then obliged to join Perdiccas in another expedition against Arabius, king of the Lincestians. The fact that the Macedonian monarch was contributing to the pay of the Peloponnesian army rendered it necessary for Brasidas to cooperate in an enterprise which was of no interest to the Greeks. Arabius was defeated in a battle, but a reinforcement of Illyrians came to his help, and the warlike reputation of Illyria was so great that their approach produced a panic among the Macedonians, and the whole army of Perdiccas fled, leaving the small force of Brasidas to retreat as best it could. He was in great jeopardy, but effected his retreat successfully. The incident led to a breach between Brasidas and the Macedonians, Perdiccas changed sides once more, and proved his new friendship to Athens by preventing Lacedaemonian troops, which had been sent to join Brasidas, from crossing Thessaly. Brasidas returned to Torone, and found that an Athenian armament of fifty ships under Nicias and Nicaratus had recovered Mende, and was besieging Scione. Everywhere else the truce was observed, and by tacit consent the hostilities in Thrace were not allowed to affect the rest of Greece but it was inevitable that they should frustrate the purpose for which the truce had been concluded. It was impossible that negotiations with a view to the definitive peace should proceed in exactly the same way as had been originally contemplated. By the end of the year there was a marked change in public feeling at Athens, and the influence of Cleon was again in the ascendant. If Nicias had played into the hands of Sparta, Brasidas had played into the hands of Cleon and effectually embarrassed the home government. His conduct first in regard to Scione, and then in regard to Mende, was indefensible and entirely governed by personal considerations. The gold crown of Scione seemed to have acted like a potent spell in arousing his ambition, and he began to play a war-game of his own. 
his policy was the more unhappy, as he was perfectly aware that it was impossible to protect the cities of Pelene against the fleets of their indignant mistress. He effectually hindered the conclusion of peace, which his city sincerely desired. Brasidas and Cleon, Thucydides said, were the chief opponents of the peace, but while the motives of Brasidas were purely personal, the policy of Cleon, whatever his motives may have been, was statesmanlike. He adopted the principle of Pericles that Athens must maintain her empire unimpaired, and he saw that this could not be done without energetic opposition to the progress of Brasidas in Thrace. The charge of Thucydides that Cleon desired war, because he could not so easily conceal his own dishonesty in peace, does not carry the least conviction. When the truce expired, Cleon was able to carry a resolution that an expedition should be made to reconquer Amphipolis. It does not appear whether he was himself anxious for the command, in consequence of his previous success at Pylos, or whether the opposition and the lukewarmness of the strategoi practically force him into it. But it is certain that all possible difficulties were thrown in his way by Nicias and the peace party, who in their hearts doubtless hoped for the complete failure of his enterprise. End of part 14 Part 15 Battle of Amphipolis and Peace of Nicias Cleon set sail with thirty ships bearing twelve hundred Athenian hoplites, three hundred Athenian cavalry, as well as allies. Taking some troops from the force which was still blockading Scione, he gained a considerable success at the outset by taking Torone and capturing the Lacedaemonian governor. Brasidas arrived too late to relieve it. Cleon went on to the mouth of the Strymon and made Aeon his headquarters, intending to wait there until he had augmented his army by reinforcements from Thrace and Macedonia. Not far from its mouth the stream of the Strymon expands into the lake Circinitis. On narrowing again into its proper channel, it is forced to bend to the westward in order to skirt a hill, and forms a great loop before it disgorges its water into the sea close to the walls of Aeon. In this loop the high city of Amphipolis stood, water-girt as its name implies, the river serving as its natural defence, so that it required artificial bulwarks only on the eastern side. On the right bank of the river, to the west of the town, rose the hill of Cerdilion. On the east were the heights of Pangius. A ridge joined Pangius with the hill of Amphipolis, and the wall of the city crossed the ridge. The Strymon Bridge was outside the south-western extremity of the wall, but since the place had passed into the hands of Brasidas, a palisade had been built connecting the wall with the bridge. Brasidas, with some of his forces, took up a commanding position on the hill of Cerdilion, from which he had a wide view of the surrounding country, while other troops remained in Amphipolis under the command of Clearidas, whom he had appointed governor. Their hoplites numbered about two thousand. The discontent and murmurs of his troops forced Cleon to move prematurely. The soldiers had grumbled at leaving Athens under an utterly inexperienced commander to face a general like Brasidas, and they were now displeased at his inaction. In order to do something, Cleon led his army to the top of the ridge near the city wall, where he could obtain a view of the country beyond, and as he saw Brasidas on Cerdilion, he had no fear of being attacked. But Brasidas was resolved to attack before reinforcements should arrive, and seeing the Athenians move, he descended from Cerdilion and entered Amphipolis. 
The Athenians, who had reached the ridge, could observe the whole army gathered within the city, and Brasidas himself offering sacrifice at the temple of Athena, and Cleon was presently informed that the feet of men and horses ready to sally forth could be seen under one of the gates. Having verified this fact for himself, Cleon gave the signal to wheel to the left and retreat to Aeon. It was the only possible line of retreat, and necessarily exposed the unshielded side to an enemy issuing from the city. But he made the fatal mistake of not preparing his men for action, in case they should be forced to fight. He rashly calculated that he would have time to get away. Hence, when Brasidas, with a hundred and fifty hoplites, came forth from one of the gates, ran up the road, and charged the Athenian centre, the left wing, which was in advance, was struck with terror and took to flight. At the same time, the rest of the garrison of Amphipolis, led by Clearidas, had issued from a more northerly gate and attacked the Athenian right. Here a stand was made, though Cleon, unused to the dangers of warfare, proved himself no better than many of his hoplites, who were said to be the flower of the army. He fled and was shot down by a targeteer. But the bravery of Brasidas was doomed as well as the cowardice of Cleon, by the equal decree of death. As he was turning to assist Clearidas, he received a mortal wound and was carried into the city. He lived long enough to be assured of the utter rout of the foe, but his death had practically converted the victory into a defeat. The people of Amphipolis gave him the honours of a hero. They made him their founder, and removed all the memorials of the true founder of their colony, the Athenian Hagnon. Sacrifices were offered to Brasidas, and yearly games celebrated in his honour. The death of Brasidas removed the chief obstacle to peace, for no man was competent or disposed to resume his large designs in Thrace. The defeat and death of Cleon gave a free hand to Nicias and the peace party. The peace party were in truth far more responsible for the disaster than Cleon, whom they had placed in a false position. Thus the battle of Amphipolis led immediately to the conclusion of peace, and the comic poet could rejoice in the destruction of the pestle and mortar, Cleon and Brasidas, with which the spirits of war and tumult had pounded the cities of Greece. But the desire of peace seems to have been even stronger at Sparta than at Athens, where there was a certain feeling, in spite of the longing for rest from warfare, that the lustre of the city was tarnished, and something strenuous should be done. Menaces of invading Attica were required to apply the necessary pressure though they could hardly have been seriously contemplated as long as the captives were in an Athenian prison. Negotiations were protracted during autumn and winter, and the peace was definitely concluded about the end of March. The peace, of which Nicias and Pleistoanax were the chief authors, was fixed for a term of fifty years. Athens undertook to restore all the posts which she had occupied during the war against the Peloponnesians, Pylos, Cythera, Methone, Atalanta, and Teleon in Thessaly, but she insisted upon retaining Solion and Anactorion and the port of Nisaea. The Lacedaemonians engaged to restore Amphipolis and to relinquish Argilus, Stagira, Acanthus, Scolus, Olynthus, Spartulus, which cities, remaining independent, were to pay a tribute to Athens according to the assessment of Aristides. Moreover, the fortress of Panacton in Mount Cithiron, which the Boeotians had recently occupied, was to be restored to Athens. 
certain towns in the possession of Athens, such as Turoni, were to be dealt with at the discretion of Athens. All captives on both sides were to be liberated. The details of this treaty and of the truce of 423 BC have been given fully by Thucydides, and are of great importance for the study of the diplomatic methods of the Greek states. Other clauses of the Peace of Nicias are as follows. The common temples of Greece are to be free to all. The autonomy of the Delphians and their temple is insured. Controversies between contracting parties are to be settled by legal means. The inhabitants of any city handed over to the Athenians are allowed to leave it and take their property with them. Argilus, Olynthus, etc. may become allies of Athens if they voluntarily consent, and Mechiberna, Sane and Singe are to be independent. If any matter is forgotten in this contract, the Athenians and Lacedaemonians may make alterations by mutual agreement. The oaths to the peace are to be renewed every year, and the terms are to be inscribed on pillars at Olympia, Delphi, Isthmus, and on the Acropolis of Athens, and in the temple of Apollo at Amyclae. It appeared immediately that the situation was not favourable to a durable peace, for when the terms were considered at Sparta by a meeting of deputies of the Peloponnesian allies, they were emphatically denounced as unjust by three important states, Corinth, Boeotia, and Megara. Corinth was indignant at the surrender of Solion and Anactorion. Megara was furious that Nisaea should be abandoned to the enemy, and Boeotia was unwilling to hand over Panacton yet Athens could hardly have demanded less. The consequence was that the peace was only partial. Those allies which were politically of most consequence refused to accept it, and they were joined by Ellis. The diplomacy of Nicias was a complete failure, so far as it aimed at compassing an abiding peace. But since the deepest cause of the war lay in the commercial competition between Athens and Corinth, and since the interests of Sparta were not at stake, the treaty might seem at least to have the merit of simplifying the situation. But if we admit the justification of the imperial policy of Pericles, then the policy of vigorous action advocated by Cleon was abundantly justified. It may safely be said that if the conduct of the state had rested entirely with Cleon, and if the military talents of the city had been loyally placed at his disposal, the interests of Athens, as Pericles understood them, would have been far better served than if Nicias and his party had been allowed to manage all things as they willed, without the restraint of Cleon's opposition. Few statesmen of the merit of Cleon have come before posterity for judgment at such a great disadvantage, condemned by Thucydides, held up to eternal ridicule by Aristophanes. If we allow for the personal prejudice of Thucydides, whose testimonies only show that Cleon was a coarse, noisy, ill-bred, audacious man, offensive to noblemen and formidable to officials, the watchful dog of the people. Nothing is proved against his political insight or his political honesty. The portrait of Aristophanes in the Nights carries no more historical value than nowadays a caricature in a comic paper. He too had suffered from the assaults of Cleon, who had dragged him to the senate-house, and trodden him down, and bellowed over him, and mauled him till he scarce escaped alive. 
The Peace of Nicias was celebrated by a play of Aristophanes, which admirably expresses the exuberant joy then felt at Athens, but carefully avoids the suggestion of any noble sentiment that may have quickened the poet's delight in the accomplishment of the policy he had advocated. So Cleon's friends might have said, but we judge Aristophanes unfairly if we misapprehend the comic poet's function. Comedy did not guide public opinion, but rather echoed it. Comedy set up no exalted ideal or high standard of action. The best hits were those which tickled the man in the marketplace, and more or less responded to his thoughts. Aristophanes had his own political prejudices and predilections, but as a son of Athens he was assuredly proud of the great place which her democracy had won for her in the world. It was the nature and the business of his muse to distort in the mirror of comedy the form and feature of the age. But the poet who was inspired to write the verse, O rich and renowned and with violets crowned, O Athens, the envied of nations, cannot have been altogether out of sympathy with those who strove to maintain the imperial position of his country. End of part 15 End of chapter 10 End of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1 This recording is in the public domain.